Battle Blunders, a show where we look at military history's greatest defeats and biggest mistakes. Hey guys, Cullen here, the host of Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Hope you all are doing well. I am just checking in with you. Uh, Kokoda is coming. It's definitely coming along, but uh, it isn't really a battle. It's a campaign, so it's a collection of little battles, and there's just a lot going on, a lot of stories to tell, so it's taking a little bit longer than um, it might typically take. That being said, uh, I don't want to half-ass it, so in the interest of whole-assing it, I'm going to take my time and, and really nail it, but... In the meantime, so that you're not completely bereft of Cauldron, I have a episode here for you that is called uh, Battle Blunders. It is the retreat from Kabul. So check this out. It is a series that we're going to run uh, specifically for Patreon Tier 3 producers. So that is a, a series along with the War A to Z series and... Uh, anything else that I can kind of drum up and put over there for Patreon producers specifically. Um, so check that out. We are on Patreon at Cauldron Podcast. Uh, just search that, and you'll uh, you'll have this available to you. We've got a whole bunch of different battles that we're going to be running off of um, off of this series. So uh, it's something that I'm I'm excited about. We're kind of going to cover the uh, military disasters, the biggest blunders, uh, the worst commanders in military history in that series. So check that out on Patreon and give this episode a listen. As always, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, share this on Twitter, do what you can to help spread the word. It, uh, it really helps the show grow. So uh, I thank you very much for that. Enjoy this episode and go ahead and uh, check out Kokoda when it comes out. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Hey guys, Cullen here and I just wanted to say thank you real quick before I start on our new show, Battle Blunders. Uh, this is a show specific to Tier 3 of the Patreon Producer Program. So thank you very much. You guys are the best. You guys have gone out of your way to support the show. Um, and, and really, your support goes a long way. It, is, uh, it means a lot to me, and it helps keep everything kind of running and chugging along. But uh, enough of that. Let's get to the, the newest show, the latest addition to the Patreon series, as you know, we are doing the War A to Z series. That is for the uh, Tier 3 and 2 Patreon producers. And we are also going to um, try and find ways to do more video stuff. I've got a little key in with a company called, or an app called Stereo that might allow us to do live episodes where you guys can uh, either join or ask questions or whatever it might be. So while we figure out that, and while we plug along with the War A to Z, I decided to start this, which is Battle Blunders. And in Battle Blunders, we are going to take a peek at the how and why, and often the who, of history's uh, more significant military disasters and failures. I find these to be the most compelling 
uh, the most interesting stories to come out of military history. I, I Don't get me wrong, I love a good Waterloo, I love a good... Uh, uh, Good Waterloo, a good Tannenberg, a great, you know, masterful performance or a brilliant victory. But uh, I think the the real crushing defeats caused by forced errors and mistakes are the the really rich stories. I think when an enemy army gets defeated simply because it just wasn't their day or because they were just purely outmatched like the Romans against Gauls or whatever it might be, um, I think that's less interesting than when you have a more technologically advanced uh, uh, army or or, uh, force and it gets destroyed by a weaker force through a series of either errors or uh, miscalculations or just blind-headed, uh, pig-headedness. So these are interesting to me. And while we go along, I want to kind of have a conversation about what command or uh, what the different aspects of uh, what it takes to make a successful battle plan or, or a victorious commander are. I think over and over it seems to me the things that uh, pop up through these stories or the kind of lessons learned are speed, decisiveness, and fearlessness are the three things that really, really go into uh, a commander that is successful. If you look at like a Caesar or a Napoleon at his in his prime or uh, a Wellington pretty much throughout his career, it's that speed, that ability to quickly make a decision and then follow through with that. And then the fearlessness of... Uh, whatever comes out of this, whatever happens after I set things in motion here, it's going to be. It has to be that way. I might lose. I might lose everything. I might lose all my men, my army, my my own life, or my position of power, whatever it might be. But that kind of fearlessness is uh, incredibly important in the kind of the cocktail mixture that makes up a, a great commander. Today, the inaugural episode of Battle Blunders, I'm going to talk about the retreat from Kabul or Kabul. Um, This is a pretty famous moment in British military history. I believe it ranks as the uh, greatest military defeat up until the collapse and surrender of Singapore in World War II. Uh, This is where we have the infamous Elfie Bay. Um, he's a older general and, and I think one of the things that we will see as we go along here and we pick apart the, the defeats and the disasters that occur due to the man or, or, you know, the leader in charge being unfit to command really come about from a, a couple of fairly obvious factors, but things that, are seemingly unavoidable before the uh, action. So you have age, uh, you know, that makes all the sense in the world, although there have been plenty of older generals who have been high-functioning and capable. Uh, that's not necessarily a indication of, of a general that's going to fail, but it is a, more, more often than not, it's a factor. You have the physical failing. That kind of goes hand in hand with age where, you know, if, if a guy can't get around on his own two feet or he can't move quickly enough or he can't physically 
take the strain of either campaign or battle, uh, the quick field decisions, the ability to uh, stay you know, mentally engaged and process information and data as it comes in rapidly. Uh, if that's lacking, then you're in for a world of hurt. Uh, there's also a seeming consistent lack of, of experience. Now, I, I mean experience as in battlefield experience. A lot of the great blunders, massive military defeats, uh, the general in charge was somebody who was either a politician or a civilian or a economic operator, whatever it might have been, uh, who through power or purchase somehow got their position on the field or through just kind of a, this was the only guy left on the list, so we had to use him or it was his day. You know, he's been on our, our little roster for long enough where, well, he got the promotion just by uh, waiting everybody else out, and so now he's our guy. Uh, that lack of experience tends to lead to disaster, and and it really is because if you've never, if you've been riding a, a desk, or if you've been a pure theorist or a logistician, or whatever it might be, it doesn't necessarily mean you have the ability to command on the field. And time and time again throughout history, we've seen that. Uh, kind of rear its ugly head, whether it's Crassus, or Crassus at Carhai uh, or uh, McClellan in the, uh, the Peninsula Campaign in the Civil War, or uh, what we're about to talk about is Elfie Bay, who, although having fought with Wellington and, and, and been a fairly successful officer in the Napoleonic Wars, 20, 30 years later, he had spent most of his career kind of in the uh, in the offices and in the background, and by the time he gets to command in in the field of battle, it's it doesn't translate. Um, and the final two qualities that lead towards disaster for those unfit to command are uh, kind of a, a mixture of vacillation and timidity, uh, that overcaution, that lack of grit, and uh, this just overall unsure nature of these guys really it leads to an incredible loss of opportunity and and often disaster and by loss of opportunity i mean it like there are a serious number of times where i'm researching and reading and some guy just kind of stumbles into a potential victory uh, or puts himself in the right spot through no fault of his own or attempt of his own just kind of finds the right mixture uh, but isn't sure if if he basically isn't sure what the enemy is going to do, so that makes him move, or he is moving and, and making decisions based on what the enemy is doing, and instead of forcing the enemy to make moves based on what he's doing. And that is a huge kind of cornerstone mentality for successful field commanders to have. Is, Bend the enemy or bend your opposition, your opponent, to your will and not the other way around. Don't, care, don't you know, be aware of what they're doing, but don't base your decision-making on it. Make them do that. Um, and, again, that is what we see over and over with these guys in these particular battles is that uh, they just don't seem capable of doing that or even... Uh, even understanding that that's what they're supposed to be doing. So 
Without any further ado, I know I've been rambling here, but I'm just excited about this topic. Let's talk about the retreat from Kabul uh, and the disastrous Elfie Bay. Quote, his pusillanimous conduct led to the most disgraceful and humiliating episode in our history of war against an Asian enemy up to that time, end quote. That was written by Field Marshal Gerald Templer, a man that knew a little something about soldiering, having fought in both world wars and had ended his career, which ran for decades, as the chief of the Imperial General Staff in the 1950s. Uh, so Templer referred to one of the most bizarre, uh, one of the most brutal failures in British military history. That is the retreat from Kabul. Uh, specifically, he's referring to the man behind the mishap, uh, Major General William Elphinstone, uh, Elfie Bay. So Elfie Bay uh, is kind of a nickname from his men. And the disaster of Kabul became the most memorable moment of the pretty nasty, rough war, uh, first Afghan war that ran from 1838 to 1842. So again, we're talking about, uh, if you figure 1814 is the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, really 1812, 1813, but 1814 is Waterloo. Um, we're talking 20, 25 years later. And so you've got a lot of commanding officers that were junior officers at the point of the Napoleonic War, um, and maybe you've got a few hard-nosed, tough, uh, non-commissioned officers in the mix, but really probably not many at this point. They would have been uh, fairly old um, and probably uh, cashed out. But So Afghanistan has a, a pretty well-earned reputation throughout history for being one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging place in the world, not necessarily to wage war, but to thoroughly conquer. It's uh, over and over and over. The Throughout history, conquerors have come from, from every direction trying to subdue the wild hinterlands and mountains and rubble terrain of Afghanistan. And it's it's a hard place for the locals. So Afghanistan is, uh, is in, unforgiving to invaders. It's just one of those weird places that uh, time seems to totally have forgotten and, and the world moves on and much of Afghanistan remains as it pretty much ever was. Uh, veterans of the war on terror tell tales that uh, really are just echoes of, of ones told by Russians from the 80s, the British from the 1800s. Uh, every wandering group of nomads throughout the last 2,000 years, and every invader way back to even the time of Alexander the Great has found Afghanistan Afghanistan to be a, uh, a real thorn in their collective sides. Um, like modern veterans, the British Redcoat of 1838 had no need or real reason to be in Afghanistan, but uh, British foreign policy and diplomacy and politics uh, was in high empire overdrive in the mid-1800s and would remain in that state uh, for another 50 or 60 years until at, right after the, the First World War when it started to recognize that, well, we've got to kind of try and hold on to what we've gained even though it started to slip through their hands. Um, 
one of the crown jewels of the British Empire, uh, the infamous Raj, India, was uh, was the most important piece of the imp- empire's uh, kind of crown. It was the the centerpiece of the the entire empire uh, from Clive's victory at uh, Plessy or Plessy onwards. The the subcontinent is the most crucial bit of foreign land controlled by the British government. The East India Company and thousands of smaller mercantile firms made made millions of pounds for queen, country, and for themselves by harvesting India's bounty. Uh, mainly, obviously, like with any empire system, uh, at the expense of the native populations. And by the early 19th century, the island nation's interests were so wrapped up in India that really any threat to that region, uh, any even whisper of a threat, endangered the empire as a whole because there was so much wrapped up in that in making sure that that the money that was coming out of india continued to flow Uh, if that stopped for any reason or was even kind of impeded in any way operations throughout the world and throughout the empire would be uh, stopped cold or or severely curtailed so making sure india remained exactly the way it was, was a chief priority for the British government. A shady emir named Dost Muhammad ruled in the craggy, barren wastes of Afghanistan at this time, uh, which, uh, if you're looking at a map, Afghanistan is just north of India. The British government decided Dost Muhammad was too unpredictable and dangerous and unreliable Um, They ordered an invasion of Afghanistan to preempt any funny business. So nothing had actually really happened. They had heard whispers and they'd seen uh, or gotten a kind of feeling from Dost Muhammad that he might turn on them or he might more, uh, most concerning, he might go to the Russian Empire and try and cut a deal with them. Um, So before they had that opportunity, the British go into Afghanistan. And this is setting the pace for stupidity from the jump because uh, the British reinstated this. Uh, they they get rid of Dost Muhammad and they reinstate a very unpopular local ruler named Shah Shuja. And um, obviously he's nothing more than a puppet. He's going to do whatever the British want and that's why they put him in there. But the locals hate him. Uh, the tribes hate him. Dost Muhammad's allies hate him dos muhammad's enemies hate him so he's not really he's not doing anybody any favors and especially not the british the efficient technologically superior british soon had the campaign in afghanistan wrapped up so it wasn't a matter of of really um too much trouble to get shah shuja back in there Um, And they even started to settle into kind of the monotonous life of garrison duty. Uh, In Kabul, you have soldiers that have sent letters back to their families to come along. Hey, come see the the world that we are conquering one 
boot at you know one red coat and one boot at a time we're putting together this massive empire and and we just found another little piece this afghanistan is in its own way in its own kind of lunar way it's it's beautiful so uh soon you had this very kind of distinctly european buzz about kabul uh you've got concerts and horse racing and skating and cricket matches and uh, a very very uh seemingly average british lifestyle has been uh, just kind of injected and implanted in the Kabul day to day. Shah Shuja kind of breaks up that uh, garrison lifestyle by uh, he sends for his harem. So his, you know, however many wives he wants, he's got and, it, you know, tens, maybe dozens, maybe uh, hundreds of wives end up traveling to Kabul. And there's a major citadel in the city of Kabul that will become extremely important to this story as we go forward. It's called Bala Hisar. And this is a massive structure. It's a massive, uh, if you picture a uh, pretty quintessential, like uh, Tolkien-esque, large, blocky citadel, then that's that's a good starting point for what Bala Hisar would have looked like. And Shah Shuja uh, has so many wives, he's got to kind of put them somewhere. So he picks this particular spot to do that. The British, for their part in this kind of cascading series of stupid ideas, agrees. They feel so comfortable and content and in control in the area that they decided that they would just vacate the strong defensive citadel and uh, and even help move the the Shah's women folk into their new new digs. So the harem uh, moves in and displaces most of Kabul's British garrison. So the British set up a bunch of cantonments, which is um, basically barrack buildings with uh, fortifications. But these are set up outside the city proper. Uh, these barrack buildings are they're sited on a plateau outside the city walls on a low waterlogged ground surrounded um, if you think of a bowl they're kind of the base of the bowl the bottom of the bowl and around them are high grounds and hills so i mean i've never been in battle i've never commanded men i've never sighted a fort i can tell you right now that is a terrible position to put your own men um you've not only got them on flat uh, waterlogged ground where not much for them to hide behind if anybody shows up and wants to start a gunfight, but also it doesn't really matter if somebody shows up and wants to start a gunfight. If if they're down in the bottom of that bowl and the bad guys are up on the top of the hills, uh, they have the high ground. And as anybody with a basic knowledge of military history understands, or just anything, uh, anybody that's played King of the Hill or, or done anything like that as a kid, if you're on the top of the hill, it's a lot easier to, uh, to beat up on the people down below, especially when you're shooting guns. Uh, so, and, and worse still, the, maybe the, one of the bigger issues here is that you have uh, a series of, of obstacles between the cantonment and the city of Kabul proper. You've got orchards, irrigation ditches, brush underbrush and and hedges that that make any kind of continuous movement or um, a large formation movement 
almost impossible. Or, you know, if, if it can be done, it's being done very slowly and with a ton of effort. So if you have to retreat back to the city or if you want to consolidate your forces, you are um, up the proverbial creek without the paddle because now you've got all these little things that men have to move around or go through, and that takes time. And if you're being shot at while you're doing it, well, it's even more uh, well, it's more dangerous, but it's even more time-consuming because instead of just uh, you know running through that orchard, now I've got to stop, hide behind a tree, and then hide behind the next one, and and if I've got to go across a ditch, now I'm even lower down before. It's it's a terrible idea. Um, truly, a novice could point out the inherent dangers and issues of placing your cantonments or your barracks in this kind of a position. And the cantonments are uh, the, their location is a huge problem, but it's also a problem compounded by the cantonments design. So uh, it's a thousand yard long by 600 wide rectangle uh, with a a fairly low rampart series running around the entire fort and then a thin ditch right in front of the rampart. And the rampart, it's like a low wall um, and the thin ditch obviously is kind of so that now you've got a height advantage added to the height advantage you already have with the low rampart. Um, The British, though, had way too much defensive front to cover uh, with the amount of men that they had. So you're talking a thousand yards and then 600 yards. It's just way, way, way too much land to cover. And again, it's at the base of a bowl. So around it is a 360 degree spot for the enemy to show up. So you've got to protect and hold every yard of that fortress or, you know, so-called fortress, uh, you've got to protect the entirety of your perimeter. And the icing on top of the whole shitstorm uh, is that the supplies are f- for the entire British force. So all of the the supplies of uh, ammunition and, and all the things that you might need to fight a battle are being kept in a storehouse, uh, a, kind of a small fortress 300 yards away from the cantonment. So... If anybody with a brain looking at it would question what they, the first question would be, so what happens if the enemy gets your stores? Or even if they can't conquer it, um, maybe you have a, a strong defensive unit in there. What if they just separate you from it? There's no airlift. There's no Hueys coming out of nowhere to drop you know, supplies. Uh, there's, no, there's no ability to fling them across the 300 yards. You are out of luck. So uh, another just basic bad idea here. And and it could have been easily solved. Solved If you brought your stores into that, that cantonment in the center of it, um, as we'll see down the line in the main show when we cover Rourke's Drift, one of the, the keys to the Rourke's Drift success for the British was that ammunition was free-flowing and easily accessible in the center of the fortification there. Um, Here at Kabul, they've done quite the opposite. So if they needed anything in the heat of battle, the British just have to kind of fight their way out, then get to the other fort if it's still theirs, load up, and then fight their way back, and then fight their way into the cantonment. Essentially a suicidally stupid setup, uh, and it will play a a fairly large role in, in what comes. 
So Elfie Bay, again, the man in charge here, he gets a kind of a pass on the design flubs because it's the cantonments and the allowance of Shad Shuja's women to take over the uh, Citadel. This is all a lot on the watch of uh, Elfie Bay's predecessor, Major General uh, Willoughby Cotton. He kind of masterminded this story uh, excuse for a fortification of course bay could have tweaked things or started over from scratch but but he didn't um so that's on him but uh, he was he was inclined to complacency and and that natural inclination inclination was really fortified by uh cotton himself because as he handed the control of the garrison over to bay so as he's leaving and uh giving control of of kabul over to bay he says Basically, he says, you've got nothing to do here. It's it's all peace. It's no problem. You'll be fine. Um, don't worry about it. Have fun. By the time that the people in command at Horse Guards send Elfie Bay to Afghanistan, he's a fuddy-duddy through and through. He's uh, bred to serve the Empire. He was a, a grandson of the 10th Baron Elphinstone, who was the son of a former director of the East India Company. And, and again, the East India Company, just so we're on the same page, East India Company is a corporation that kind of owns India for a period of time, uh, basically runs India like its own little business. Uh, if you can imagine Amazon, uh, you know, 250 years ago, then you, you're kind of in that realm. It's so powerful. It's so wealthy that the government is making choices based on what's good for the East India Company. And it kind of becomes a thing where the interests of the government are wrapped up in the success of the East India Company. So they're propping it up at times and, and really militarily making sure that everything can go well for them. Uh, the East India Company has its own uh, military forces at for for a period of time and um, it's a very very important part of the story of of the British Raj and the British in India and, and the British Empire as a whole so check that out look into that a little bit deeper if you get the chance it's, very, it's a fascinating story but um, so yeah Elphinstone's great-grandfather is one of the former directors of the uh, East India Company he's got a cousin who's the governor of Madras in India um, and, and Elphinstone, when he was younger, had been a, he had been a warrior. At one point, he's serving under Wellington in the peninsula and at Waterloo. And, and Wellington didn't really, you know, he didn't suffer any fools and probably wouldn't have kept him around throughout the peninsula and, and at Waterloo if he thought he wasn't worth it. Um, by the 1830s, though, the man that fought for Wellington is a shadow of his former self. It's 15, 20 years later. He's older. He's less inclined to um, to take risks and kind of put himself out there. He's almost 60 years old at the point uh, that we're talking about now. He's incontinent and gassy, so he's he's becoming an old man. He's he's a, he's a suffering old man, and he had served. Uh, he had, he had. Uh, such severe gout that walking and riding two very important things when you're campaigning, especially in 1830s and 1840s, um, you know, reasonably crucial activities for a commander, I would think, um, were both walking and riding were both excruciating ordeals for Elfie Bay. So for his, for his part, uh, Elfie Bay knew he was not the man he once was. He didn't want 
this command. He knew he was ill-suited for this job uh, in a far-off land, way out in the middle of God knows where, um, and in a place particularly like Afghanistan that was kind of regularly on the brink of war. Elfie Bay didn't want any of that. He didn't want any of that noise. Um, when the orders came to him to make his way to Kabul to take control, Bay attempted to say no. He he basically did everything but give a, his letter of resignation saying, I don't want this. I don't want this job. Um, but his objections were denied and he, because, like we talked about at the beginning, he was of the correct age, of the correct rank, and importantly for the very class-conscious class British uh, society of the time, he was of the right social class. And so Alfie Bay ends up in charge of this uh, extremely ill-fated Afghanistan uh, Kabul garrison. Um, and it almost immediately uh, starts going bad for him in 1841. Uh, Bay, is he's laid low by fever and a severe attack of gout as he's trying to make his way there. He sends a, a very panicky and pleading letter to a, a family member stating that he's he's virtually begging the horse guards to send him back. Had had things been allowed to stay calm and reasonably peaceful, Bay would likely have gotten his wish. Like if if the events that are coming up didn't happen, uh, Bay would have probably been packed up and sent back to London uh, with you know and told to hit the pastures of of military retirement as it works out though all hell breaks loose and he's johnny on the spot you know he's he's in the wrong place at the wrong time um, a new administration takes control of parliament and in an attempt to st kind of stop overspending and curtail the debts that parliament has inc incurred all over the place the new guys in london look for places where they can cut costs so they're trying to save money for the government. And one obvious place to make some immediate savings was in the subsidies and protection taxes that, that the government's been paying to tribes and clans in the India-Afghanistan region. Uh, the Gilzais or Gilzahis, I'm not sure which one, uh, the tribe that held the Khyber Pass, which will come into uh, to the story later and is a very important part of this story. The Gilzais, they have their, their pay from the British government cut in half. And of course, they're not happy about this because nothing has really changed on their end. It's not their fault that back in London, some uh, new guys are trying to show their constituents that they can save money for them. Um, the Gilzai's don't care about that at all. So the Khyber Pass was and is the fastest route to India proper from Kabul. And it's a hugely important trade route that, that gave wealth and power to whoever controlled it. It's still important now. It's been important throughout history. Um, so the Gilzai's are like, well, we've got this really sweet little thing called the Khyber Pass. And if you guys want to use that, like you, you still owe us the same amount of money. <laughs> we don't, uh, we don't really give a, we don't care that you're trying to save. Um, so the British government under, uh, they send a, a British force, a brigade under Colonel Robert Sale. Um, he's ordered to go kind of put some stick about in the country. Basically their uh, Sale and his men have been on campaign. They're on their way home they are being discharged, but on their march back to uh, to India to eventually make it 
make their way home, the, the government tells them, yeah, why don't you lay some stick about up there and go through the pass and just let the Gil- Gilzais know that we're, we're still in power here and they, they should do what they're told. Um, so on its way home, they, they're supposed to show a bit of force and the unit suffers severely at the hands of the Gilzais. And this display of anger works like a beacon to all the other tribes in the area. They're basically like, look, we just tore this British force to shreds. Uh, they, the British did make it out. They made it there on their way back to India, but uh, they, were, they were roughed up pretty bad. And the other tribes around uh, the Khyber Pass and, and the Gilzais at their head are saying like, hey, look, if we could do it to one of them. We could probably do it to all of them. Um, and so soon the whole countryside is in an absolute uproar. A, a full-on revolt is underway. And the only man that could stop it just wanted to go home. Um, from the jump, Elfie Bay could not get out of his own way when it comes to putting down this revolt. On November 2nd, the British residency in Kabul was attacked. Um, Think of Benghazi or Tehran's U.S. embassy attack. This is is a very big deal. uh, It'll play in the papers. It'll be something that people are talking about. Bay ordered his second-in-command, a Brigadier General Shelton, to stand down when the tenacious general prepared to march to the Bala Hissar, that citadel that we talked about where the Shah's harem is. So uh, Bey's second-in-command is like, let's go to that big, sweet defensive spot, kick out all the women in there, and start putting some cannons and guns up on the walls, and basically we'll control the city from there. Uh, both times, Bey insisted that the Shah's men would be be okay without the British help. So... Not only is the Shah's harem there, but the Shah has a uh, his own military force there. Uh, it's smaller. It's obviously not as well organized or kitted out as the British. But they're holding that position to protect the harem. Uh, and Bay is like, no, 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 they'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. They'll be fine. So Brigadier Shelton is told to stand down twice and, uh, and that things would be fine. Finally, Shelton is given the order by Elfie Bay to go ahead and march over to the Citadel and see if we can hold it and what we can do to help. Uh, by the time Shelton gets there, there's nothing that can be done. The Shah's men had been ambushed thoroughly and basically cut down in the streets of Kabul. If you've seen the, I forget what season of Game of Thrones, but when Daenerys Targaryen and her armies are roaming the streets of, of uh, Marine and all of a sudden the the masked enemy show up in the streets and just start killing all of her men that are, are unlucky enough to be alone or in small groups walking around the city. Um, this is something like that where you have the Shah's men there just going about their daily business and then all of a sudden the tribes that had infiltrated the city proper end up uh, just grabbing men off the streets or they had infiltrated parts of the fortress, the citadel, and, and start chasing men down the hall. Um, the Shah's men are incapable of putting together defense. And uh, some of them were just so just massacred and chopped up that uh, you had just piles, according to sources, unrecognizable piles of gore uh, littering the streets of Kabul. This is a extremely, extremely violent region of the world. Afghanistan uh, has for as long as it's had people there, we've heard stories of what they've done to 
uh, invaders, what they've done to each other. Murder is, a, or, you know, is particularly back then, was a part of of the culture. Uh, you had family, familial murder was considered just a cultural norm where, um, you know, if, if, if you didn't like your father-in-law, you could just kill him. And because it was such a hard place to live and such a hard landscape and, and it was so violent, um, these kind of things were not unheard of. So think of what that would look like when you have the most violent people or you, some of the most violent people in the world in an extremely violent situation. It's going to be, it's going to be pretty gory. It's going to be pretty horror movie stuff. Uh, Shelton does take the Citadel and he holds on, but he could basically do nothing but sit and wait for further instructions from Elfie Bay. So he does get in there. He does get this this defensible position, the Citadel, but um, he's kind of at a loss once he gets there. There's not much to be done. The cat's already out of the bag. Uh, a siege ensues, and the British find themselves in an awful way. Uh, the deficiencies of the cantonments and their position uh, almost immediately become apparent. Almost 5,000 troops uh, and 12,000 camp followers. And these troops are a mix of British regulars and the uh, East India Company and the Shuja's men. And then 12,000 camp followers are herded into that little rectangle that we talked about earlier. Um, so... By camp followers, we mean families, uh, you know, laundry women, bread makers, uh, all the different people that you need to make a uh, an army run are great when things are going well because they're feeding, they're supplying, they're doing all the things you want. But once things kind of get tough, they're just mouths to feed and people to um, worry about defending. So uh, they're not ideal in a situation like this. They're especially not ideal when they're cramped into a tiny little uh, fortress that you've got not enough fighting men to really correctly and, and properly defend um, because you're trying to work around all these people. And they're also eating into your stocks of food and supply. Uh, on November 5th, the supply depot outside the cantonment that we talked about earlier, uh, that that falls into the enemy's hands. So it adds to the crisis. The mounting crisis is becoming more intense now that nobody has access to food, all the extra ammunition. Um, it's, it's a dire situation. It's exactly what we talked about at the beginning is a silly move to put your supply depot 300 yards outside of your, uh, your defense position. So now is the moment uh, that the decisive moment, that, that moment where a, a Caesar or a Wellington or, or a decisive mind uh, would have acted. Instead, you've got Alfie Bay. And a choice is, any decision is always better than none, and Alfie Bay makes no decision. Um, because at least if you make a choice, you can figure out whether or not you are right or wrong. You know, if it's the wrong choice, you'll figure it out soon enough and maybe you can react and, and maybe you can somehow change it or tweak it or go ahead and do the other thing and that will be the right choice or hopefully it'll be a better choice. But if you decide to do nothing, then you are completely at the, uh, at the, the you're completely at the beck and call of the enemy. You're at their 
power. You're you're in their power. So uh, the de- indecision by Bay here is a a kind of a window into his fears. It's it's clear he not only was clueless as to the plan of action that would have pulled him out of this, but he was also plain dumb scared. By my estimation, I think he was just afraid. Uh, one of the best indications that uh, fear was kind of overwhelming Bay here is on the sixth when he pleads for his superiors to seek terms with the enemy as he and his men were running low on ammunition. So he writes back to India and he says, please, you've got to get something done. You've got to pull us out of this. you got to save us. We're running low on ammunition. We can't keep firing. Um, we're going to be overrun. And according to eyewitness accounts, though, Bay and his men had powder and ammo for a 12-month siege. Now, that comes from a civilian. However, I think... Uh, I think a couple of different accounts refer to the amount of powder and ammo that is there. So had he ordered a fighting withdrawal, uh, he and his army may still have perished along the way, but they would have had a hell of a lot more say in the process. Instead, he decides to kind of tuck tail and kind of corner his superiors into offering up terms because they don't want to see a British force trapped in the middle of nowhere and, and destroyed. So if Bay is not going to fight, then they're going to have to do something on his behalf. Bay orders, again, his second-in-command Shelton to come down from the Balahisar, the citadel, and join the embattled men in the cantonment. So now he's he's going to take the strong point and uh, evacuate it. It's just silly. It, he didn't march... Had he marched his own force up to the Balahisar, a far stronger position, um, he might have had a, a much better shot of at least sitting tight and waiting out the the hottest part of this revolt. Uh, but for reasons that are unknown and likely unknowable, uh, Elfie Bay orders the force out of the Balahisar and his second command, Shelton, complies. Shelton is already not a fan of Elfie Bay, but by this point he stops pretending to take Elfie Bay seriously entirely. Um, he's apparently openly napping during Bay's councils of war. I'm using air quotes around councils of war. Um, he's kind of openly uh, snarking and... Uh, being uh, a little condescending towards Elfie Bay, and nobody can blame him because I would think anybody with a brain at this point would be like, this guy's in charge of me. I I know what the hell I'm doing, or at least I have an idea of what I'm doing, and this guy is a fool. He's got no clue what's going on. Um, but Shelton is, uh, like I said, he's he's kind of just, he's written the whole thing off as, as a, an evolving disaster. Uh, a feeling of, of just general helplessness was c- kind of what Elfie Bay exuded. One of his lieutenants wrote, quote, The number of croakers in garrison became perfectly frightful, lugubrious looks and dismal prophecies being encountered everywhere, end quote. So Elfie Bay is giving off this kind of uh, loser helplessness, and then the men around him are starting to pick it up, but they're also not stupid. They're looking around and they're like, well, we are screwed. I mean, look at this. There's hundreds, thousands of enemy are showing up daily. They're running around and we have no control. And the man in charge seems to know little to nothing about what uh, what to do in this situation. So you can't blame them for being croakers. Uh, the constant harassment 
by Afghan artillery too. And it's, you know, it's not the best artillery in the world, I'm sure. Isn't really wildly effective in in terms of casualties, but it's enough to um, kind of impinge on the mood or or it's having an effect on the overall mood of the people in the cantonments. Um, An attempt is made to sally out and to try and silence the guns on the surrounding hills. Uh, That does not work. On November 23rd, the attack kind of fizzles and dies out, and the British were whipped and sent back into the cantonment. The rebel leaders are so confident in their success here that they offer a truce. Uh, Many of these ardent tribal fighters understand that they they have a bit of a wolf-by-the-ear situation. Yes, they currently have control of the British in front of them. They have them surrounded. They're kind of picking them off and slapping them around but if they mishandle this situation or if enough time goes by a larger far more angry british army is going to come from india and that is going to come straight for the afghan throats and rip them up um, because the afghan tribes know that they can't really stand toe-to-toe with a full british army uh, on point so they've got to get get their you know, get their punches in now and then get this thing done and, and patched up in a peace deal or a truce or something so that they're then able to kind of enjoy their victory instead of getting a victory and then having their heads bashed in the next campaign season. The offer presented by the British or to the British was a fairly simple one, uh, very straightforward. And really, it hints at the Afghan fears that we just talked about. The, the truce offer was for the British to withdraw and Dost Muhammad would be placed back in power. The Afghans would then guarantee that they would take on no allies, i.e. Uh, Russia or any other power like that. So, um, so pretty straightforward. It's a tit for tat. You leave and we put our old guy back in power and in return, we won't ally with your enemy. So a seemingly good plan seems like a fair deal. Uh, in late December, Akbar Khan, the son of Dost Muhammad and a true zealot, um, but also uh, uh, an insightful and smart leader. He's a planner. He he really gets the the better of Elfie Bay here. So uh, not a zealot in the sense that he's mindless, just a zealot in the sense that he really wants his dad, Dost Muhammad, back up on that uh, on the throne here. He learns that some British backroom uh, wheeling and dealing is going on and that some of the, the people trying to negotiate the truce are not being fully honest or truthful. And so the, uh, he kind of exposes the British and their underhandedness here and even went so far as, as beheading a British envoy. So he, uh, a diplomat is sent out to try and work, rework the deal a little, a little bit. And Akbar Khan uh, has him beheaded. And he has the diplomat's body uh, hoisted up on a meat hook and hung in the Kabul Bazaar. So out in the middle of the market, you know, in the market square is a hanging British diplomat's body hanging on a hook for all to see, uh, including the British. Again, probably not helping their morale or their mood. Uh, and Elfie Bay does nothing to stop this. He does nothing to uh, 
retaliate for it. I think this is another part where he's probably just scared at this point. Um, that that would be a pretty jarring thing to see, especially if you're a British aristocrat who is used to everybody recognizing the rules and agreed uh, confines of what's acceptable in war. Um, seeing one of his own kind of strung up like that must have been jarring. Uh, some of his officers agreed with him that now it was clear that the time to negotiate was upon them. Some of the younger officers, though, are angry and scared, and, and they wanted revenge and action. They called for a direct assault on Kabul uh, immediately, saying that they would, quote, uh, no doubt have stormed and carried it in, in no time. Uh, they wanted to do that, or they wanted to try and march back to Bala Hissar, where they might hold on until a relief army came in the spring. So there are options for Elfie Bay here. There are choices that could have been made, and yet he again chooses none of them. Um, some of the young officers even called on Elfie Bay to order the baggage train burned and abandoned, and then uh, the lighter, faster column should then fight its way out to Jalalabad and, and try and cut its way through. This would have been a disaster for the camp followers. They would have known that they would have been uh, considered nothing more than baggage. And so the fighting troops would have tried to just blast their way out. Um, but Bay does nothing. Instead, he opts to start a dialogue with the murderous Khan, uh, Khan Akbar, or Akbar Khan. Um, Akbar postures and he pressures, and finally on January 1st, 1842, a deal is signed. The British would take nine large caliber guns and the men would take their standard kit. The rest of the guns, extra guns, muskets, artillery, ammo, would all be left behind for Akbar Khan. The British start their backward anabasis on January 6th. A horde of camp followers, the 44th Regiment, the Royal Horse Artillery, a couple of dozen European women and kids, and a few thousand sepoys of the East India Company. Before the shuffling mass of humanity lay about 80 miles of harsh winter conditions and angry, violent tribal harassment. So the whole way, the whole 80 miles to safety, the British are expecting to be harassed, but not necessarily attacked, uh, because Khan Akbar has agreed to send an armed escort. So they are getting protection from the various hill tribes and marauders along the British route by the people who were just firing at them. Uh, but by the time Bay's order orders a start to the whole thing, uh, they this protective unit from Khan Akbar had yet to arrive. So the British are going to have to do the first leg of the journey on their own. Uh, Fast-moving Afghan raiders swoop in and out of the column, attacking at will from the very beginning. They grab baggage and animals, any unguarded supplies soon disappear, uh, and then so did people start to disappear. Stragglers, the wounded, the weak, uh, made obvious prime targets, and there would be, you know, there'd be a scream and a scuffle, and a little bit of dust would go up in the distance, and then either a crumpled corpse is on the ground when it settles, or a, a galloping rider streaming away with a, a struggling bundle on the back of his horse. Uh, and this played out over and over and over a hundred times. Uh, on the first day, Bay's miserable column made it only six miles. So at that pace, if you do the math, and I'm not very good at math, but uh, I think it's simple enough. At that pace, the British and Elfie Bay would have to survive almost two weeks 
before reaching safety if they go six miles a day and want to travel 80 miles. Unlikely to happen, to say the least. Uh, the loss of baggage and supplies was especially noticeable during the first frigid Afghan night. Now, the thing about Afghanistan is we all have in mind desert, um, kind of dusty rubble and mountains. Well, that is true. It's also uh, harsh mountain. I mean, we're talking the neighbors of the Himalaya mountains. So it gets cold. It gets very cold. And, and if you know anything about deserts, they get cold at night. Once that sun goes away, the temperature swing is dramatic. And that is no different than with, uh, with Afghan nights. So empty bellies, these people and animals of the British column are forced to sleep on the ground and make the best that they can. Uh, by dawn, dozens of men were dead, uh, many of them frozen and, and were left where they lay. Uh, the survivors had it only a little bit better. They, a lot of uh, frostbite was rampant. Uh, hunger was standard throughout the entire column. And they still had an incredibly daunting 74 miles to cover. So by mid-morning, control of uh, the entire column was pretty much lost. Elfie Bay has lost any credibility uh, men are doing mental math and saying all right so we're gonna die here and this guy is doing nothing but getting us killed quicker so um maybe we'll 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 go it on our own we'll do it ourselves so the head of the column marches forward on its own command without any orders and the shah uh shuja's men had kind of mass deserted in the night uh, and we're not really sure how they ended up. I'm sure some of them defected and some of them made it out and then some of them probably got hunted down and killed. Uh, and then hundreds of camp followers decide to try their own luck and, and head back to Kabul or head out to uh, places unknown. And the same thing probably happened to them. Some died, some made it, and some just were never heard from again. Uh, the confusion created an ideal series set of conditions for the Afghan forces uh, because confusion, I mean, a lot of these, these Afghan raiders and marauders are horse people uh, in their own right and they're herders and they've been on horseback their whole life. And so when you have a mass of animals and humans are nothing more than that, especially in situations like this where our, our, understanding of right and wrong and our, our little societal sticks and, and, and levels and all that really melt away. Um, the, the, the idea of it, us being civilized and all that fades into the distance when there's just a panicked mass of humans in, in a small confined area. Um, and the Afghan raiders and Afghan horsemen this is their ideal situation. This is what they do for a living. They just, they herd people and they cut off the weak ones and, you know, and, and get rid of them. So this is prime time for them. And they soon start swarming the rear guard of the column. Uh, the attack is furious and violent. Uh, in the mayhem, the British lose three of their artillery pieces. Um, Akbar arrives late in the morning with his so-called protective unit of cavalrymen. It's about 600 strong. And he, uh, he brings the promised escort and claims that they were held up. Uh, he advises Bay to halt for the day to rest and reprovision the column. Unbelievably, well, or at this point, pretty believably, Bay agrees 
So instead of trying to make as much ground up as they can, now that they've got their protection, uh, the idea of stopping and recuperating from all the chaos is really appealing to Elfie Bay. And so he stops the forward momentum and movement of men. And uh, on the, the soldiers under Bay at this point are just bristling with anger. They're, they're livid. They can see that the speed um, that they're moving at is, is a death sentence. That the only way that they are going to make it out alive, the only way they're going to survive is to move with speed. And Elfie Bay is, is willingly, um, you know, knowingly stopping that. Um, they needed to move fast and they needed to move far. And this pause right after starting was only drawing the, the, the entire challenging task out. And all the while, the tribal forces around them are, are just growing. They're, they're gathering more and more uh, men to their banners and they're calling on more and more neighbors. And every time the column comes to another spot where there's a few more villages off to the left or right of it, well, those guys see an opportunity to get something out of this, you know, a little bit of booty, a nice new gun, a couple of, you know, a pair of boots, a new horse or whatever it might be. So the villagers come from that spot and they're now they're added to the, the, the harassing forces surrounding the British. So all this uh, on the second day for a total of only 10 miles covered. So two days, 10 miles, and they've got to go another 70 miles. On the night of the second day, the temperature in the uh, the Afghan night just bottoms out. It's so cold that men are burning their clothing to stay warm. So they're stripping down and trying to burn that just for momentary warmth. They must know, uh, you know, it's not going to keep them warm all night. It's not even really going to warm them up. It's just going to be a, a hint of warmth, a, a whisper of warmth. And by dawn on the third day, uh, Bay's column set out and they finally reached the Khyber Pass. Uh, it's the, the pass we talked about with the Ghazalis. It's five miles long with cliffs running along both sides the whole way. Um, it's perfect ambush country. If you have control of it, you can control the flow of traffic in it. Uh, the column worked its way into the pass. Uh, they fought their way into the Khyber Pass. They went through an enemy position. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Afghans start firing from everywhere. Above them, either side, front, back. Chaos erupts as this fast dwindling... Uh, it erupts as the, the fast dwindling fighting effective. So the men that are able to use weapons for the British are trying to return fire, but they're just, there's just overwhelming um, opposition to them. The Afghans using their jazils or jazils. Um, this is the Afghan hillman's traditional rifle. It's a long barreled matchlock rifle. It's prone to barrel burst, but it's got excellent range and it, it it's a lot of them are artwork in their own. They're beautifully uh, inlaid or or worked with. Um, if they're they, some of them are like family heirloom pieces, and then some of them are very workmen. They're they're clear that they've been you know reworked and hashed together and band aids put on them and um, all sorts of just kind of uh, little quick fixes to them. But they have excellent range and accuracy. Uh, which is what you need in the mountainous terrain of Afghanistan. You know, if you're trying to protect your herd of sheep or goats, 
Uh, you're on the side of a mountain. You see riders from the enemy tribe coming from, you know, a few hundred yards across the plateau. Well, you've got the high position. You can use your jazeel to pick them off before they ever get to you. Um, that's so all, the British are being just mowed down by these jazeels firing from all over the place. Um, the frightened mass of humanity stampedes and things quickly devolve into a, a kind of an every man for themselves situation. Or as in, in the case of an injured lady sale and her young daughter, it was uh, an every woman for themselves situation. And Lady Sale is uh, eventually, she's injured during this. The two terrified women throw on turbans and local dress to blend in with the surging masses. Um, and they're once through the past, the British took stock of their situation. They've got 3,000 dead, many more missing and wounded. So in three days, uh, they still had about 55 to 60 miles to go. Um, and they had lost about a thousand people a day dead and probably, you know, somewhere in the few hundred range of missing and wounded per day. Uh, day four sees Elfie Bay once again trust Khan Akbar for some unknown reason. Um, Akbar recommended handing over any British officers' families for safekeeping and the British general accepts. Uh, by day five, most of the non-European forces had become immobilized by frostbite or other injuries or had just left. The f few British regulars and East India men that remained would just have to end up uh, doing it on their own. Uh, at a place called Tungi Tariki, the Afghans strike again. Another desperate fight follows, and by the end, only about 450 men and 3,000 camp followers are left. They break free of the circling enemy. Uh, the rest of the once fairly strong fighting column is slaughtered. On the 11th, the exhausted survivors reached a small village and rested in relative safety for the night. On the for the first kind of break for Elfie Bay and his men and the followers, uh, they get to take a quick breather. On the morning of the 12th, Akbar sends a message to Elfie Bay requesting the British general meet with him to discuss how best to salvage the deteriorating situation. It's another obvious ploy by the Afghan leader to slow the British column. If he can get Elfie Bay into a long, you know, a day's worth of, of conferencing and discussion, then, uh, then he's done the work of an entire army by slowing them down. Uh, so the day goes on and the negotiations drag. And by the afternoon when Bay gets up and is like, all right, well, I got to get back to my camp. We've got to prepare for tomorrow and get things rolling. Akbar drops any pretense of free friendship and refuses to let him go. Uh, Brigadier General Anquittle took command of the column and made the choice to press on even at night. So it's going to be a night march. He recognizes what Bay failed to, or at least what Bay failed to um, to to allow for, and he recognizes that they've got to move. They've got to move at all costs, even if that means moving at night, which is dangerous in itself. Night operations have never been easy. Even now, they're dangerous. Um, even with infrared and all the scopes and everything that we have now, uh, it's still dangerous to to do anything at night. Um, but back then it was particularly dangerous. You had accidents and uh, friendly fire and all sorts of different mishaps that could take place. Uh, soon they reached another tight pass in the night. This one was blocked by a makeshift barricade. Uh, 
there's a scramble to make a hole in the barrier. And as they're trying to kind of dig slash tear a hole in this barrier, the Afghan forces guarding it or nearby are alerted. And in the dark, they come in and attack. They start pouring fire into the column from both flanks. And then Afghan swordsmen rush in to kind of cut up the fleeing British. So uh, the British column in the night, they're getting shot at from both sides. And then sword-wielding Afghans surge in and start swiping at everybody. But there's a breach that is eventually made in the barricade. And this sees another stampede of, of of people um, trying to get to safety. So you see friends friends shooting each other to get through, cavalry trampling people. Um, everyone there knew that they were dead if they didn't make it through this tiny little hole in the wall. Uh, one Dr. William Bryden wrote, quote, the confusion was now terrible, end quote. Uh, 80 men make it through on foot and 14 men on horseback. On the 13th, they make it to the village of Gandamak, with one musket for every four men and a couple of rounds apiece. They believed themselves safe, but soon the once friendly villagers proved hostile. They surrounded the remnants of the 44th Regiment and attacked it. It was a foregone conclusion. Uh, But the British men still fought hard and well. They died in a final burst of uh, anger and glory. They took out a bunch of villagers, but uh, eventually... The villagers were able to take six of the survivors as prisoners and the rest were killed. Meanwhile, Dr. Bryden and the other horsemen rode ahead, uh, finally reaching Futabad, a mere 15 miles from Jalalabad's safety. They stopped for a short rest. Uh, the locals again appear to be friendly, and then all of a sudden, uh, they turn on them, and their guard is down. The riders accept food and water from the villagers, and then the villagers set upon them in an angry mob. Uh, only five men made it out of that town, and soon four of those were caught and slaughtered um, along the way. The only man to make it to Jalalabad was Dr. Bryden. Uh, he made it alone but was uh, injured several times along the way, severely wounded for the second time, uh, was attacked on three separate occasions, and his horse was shot out, almost shot out from underneath him. Uh, it was a, must have been an incredible odyssey for him to make it to safety. Of the almost 16,000 people that left Kabul only days earlier, Dr. Bryden was one of only a handful of survivors, and he was the lone European. So, uh, a truly harrowing journey for Dr. Bryden and for the vast majority of the people that left Kabul. It was the final journey. The retreat from Kabul goes down as one of the stunning, stunning defeats in British military history. Again, it won't be replaced as the biggest disgrace until maybe... Isan de Lawana uh, during the Zulu War. Um, I would say even that was more uh, more of a puncher's or more of a, a fight uh, that the British put up, and that the the disaster that matches Elfie Bay and the Kabul retreat is more uh, from from my money. It would be the fall of Singapore. I think that is probably. The, the only thing that could eclipse it. 
And it's what we talked about at the beginning of this episode. So the idea of the commander being unfit to command. Well, Elfie Bay is the quintessential um, unfit to command type of commander. He's too old for the job. He's riddled with aches and pains and injuries. Um, He mentally isn't up to the job at all. In fact, he doesn't want the job. Uh, He's incapable of of processing information the way it needs to be processed quickly and confidently. Um, He's not a decisive man of action. He's not a decision maker. He's not capable of of delegating even. So if if you're a commander who's more of the high-minded strategy type and you want to think through on that next level, you've got to be able to take your second in command and let him make the decisions for you. Elfie Bay is not able to do that. Now, that might be a mixture of his personality and the time. Um, during the time, at this point in history, it would have been very, very deeply frowned upon for him to delegate decision-making of that scale and importance to uh, second in command um he's also not a um he's not a a fast person you know no one would ever accuse him of being someone that moves with uh alacrity he uh clearly had to think through everything uh, and in the process he uh, would try and come up with a solution but ended up coming up empty uh, so Elfie Bay and the disaster of the retreat from Kabul. Uh, I will be posting this to the main cauldron stream as well because I think it'll be good for the general public to know that we have these shows on Patreon. So uh, I'll put this out there and don't worry, Kakoda is coming. I am writing that episode as we speak. Uh, the the Battle of Kakoda is on its way um, so that is coming we also have i talked to the author joseph takovsky about his book the 40 thieves of saipan about the marine sniper scouts in uh, the the horrible battle of saipan the pacific in world war ii and since we've got two world war ii pacific battles coming um, i'm going to go back in time into the way way back machine and pull something out of ancient history next all right, so that is the story of the Battle of Kabul, and or the retreat from Kabul, and the story of Elfie Bay. Keep your eyes peeled. Uh, blunders, uh, battle blunders should be uh, a once a month type show, and we'll have uh, we'll have one coming to you for what is it? It's March now, so we'll have one in April. All right, we'll talk to you soon.